This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Diane Armstrong, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Diane is a child Holocaust survivor, born in Poland and arriving in Australia with her parents in 1948. She knew she wanted to be a writer when she was seven years old. She is now an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. Aside from her six books, over 3,000 of her investigative articles, personal experience stories and travel stories, have been published in newspapers and magazines, not only in Australia, but also in the UK, Canada, Poland, Hong Kong, Hungary, Holland and South Africa. Diane has received awards and been shortlisted for many of her works, including her family memoir, Mosaic, A Chronicle of Five Generations, which was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Nonfiction, as well as a National Biography Award. Her first novel, Winter Journey, was shortlisted for the 2006 Commonwealth Writers Prize. Her second novel, Nocturne, won the Society of Women's Writers Fiction Award. Diane's newest novel is The Collaborator which is based on true events set in the darkest days of World War II in Budapest. Diane has a son and a daughter and three granddaughters. She lives in Sydney. Wow, what a life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm amazed when I hear it myself. It's a fabulous body of work. Thank you. Uh, Do you know, I think that that's really true when you're hearing somebody introduce you in terms of biography or even when you're putting your CV together, which I'm sure you haven't done for some years, but you kind of, when you start listing um, all the things you've done in life, it can seem quite impressive. Well, it it always reminds me of a story about an American comedian called George Jessel, who was a guest at some dinner. And by the time the host finished introducing him, George said, for a minute, I thought I was dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. I like that. Um, Now, tell me, um, I want to know, I want to start from when it all started um, and how, firstly, how you came to Australia. I came to Australia in 1948 with my parents. The three of us had miraculously survived the Holocaust in Poland. Do you want to talk about that? Well, we survived because we hid in a small village where no one knew us, where my father was the village dentist. And if it hadn't been for the fact that the village priest befriended my parents, especially my father, with whom he loved playing chess, we would not have survived and I wouldn't be here talking to you today. So you're in Poland and you were hidden by the priest like in a house, in a home. We Is weren't right? exactly hidden. We were. We had false papers, yeah. which, according to which, we were Jew- we were not Jewish but Catholic, right. and we used to go to church every Sunday morning. And 
we posed as Catholics. You were pretending. We were masquerading, but even that didn't really solve the problem because from the minute we arrived, in spite of the fact that we had a valid reason to be there, given that my father filled the role of the village dentist, the locals were very suspicious of us from the first minute and they kept gossiping that we must be Jewish and they even came to the priest and it wasn't until many years later when I travelled to Poland when I was researching my memoir Mosaic that by the most amazing set of circumstances and coincidences whether you call it karma or destiny or fate or synchronicity or whatever you call it I actually stood at the door of the priest who saved our life. Yeah, how moving. Yes, it was the most overwhelmingly emotional experience of my life. And do you think a lot of people were masquerading at the time? Well, not in that village because by the time we got there, the Germans had already deported all the Jewish people from that village. So we were the only ones there at the time. And how old would you have been at the time? Well, I was three when we moved to the village, but the suspicion didn't let up and my mother described our life there as living on the edge of an abyss. And in fact, my father remembers an incident where I, at the age of four, was playing in the yard outside our house in the village and a man, presumably someone who lived in the village, stopped by, saw me and came over and said, what's your name, little girl? And I told him the name that we had assumed because it was a very Catholic-sounding name. And he said, yes, but what was your name before? And my father, who overheard this exchange, stood at the doorway, absolutely turned to stone, because he knew that our entire fate depended on what I would say next. But apparently I stamped my foot in irritation, and I said, that's always been our name. That is a monumental pressure. That is monumental pressure on a child, isn't it? Yes. And you bought it. Because, you know, I look at children now and, you know, I mean, you're trying to get into somewhere, let's say, at the zoo and you ask them to lie about their age so you can get the family pass or whatever it is. (laughs) And kids can't do that. They will <laughs> always say, you know, you say, you know, pretend you're 10 or whatever or, f- or five and they can't. When you ask them how old they are, they will say, I am six. But, you know, the interesting thing is for most of my life, I didn't consider that I was a Holocaust survivor at all. I thought my parents were the survivors. It was as though I had never even been there. And that there. was your truth. That was my truth until that monumental day when I met the priest 50 years later, and he brought me face to face with the timid, frightened, tense child that I had been because he said to me, you know, even when you were four and five, whenever you said anything, you would look worriedly at your parents. Mm. So I knew deep down that my answers had a lot of weight. And they mattered. And they were about survival. Yes. I've sometimes people say, you know, they don't, that childhood memory starts at four or five or three or whatever it is. 
But I think it starts if there's something very dramatic that happens in your life at an early age, you remember it, don't you? Yes, they, they do say that. I think I was extremely fortunate in that I was with my parents the whole time. And even though I could see after my miraculous encounter with the priest that I was aware of the tension in which we lived and yeah. their constant stress, I was shielded from a lot of the horrors that a lot of people experienced because I was with my parents who were quite extraordinary people. Oh, beautiful story. I have to go back and read Mosaic. Um, <laughs> tell me then, so then, then what was next for you? What happened? Well, the next thing was my father decided he wanted to get as far away from Europe as was humanly possible. And why wouldn't you? And Australia fitted the bill, but it fitted the bill in more ways than one because my mother's only surviving close relative was a sister who had migrated to Australia after the war. Her sister and her husband had been interned in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and when they were released, my uncle's cousin in Brisbane sent them a permit. You needed a permit in those days. So they came to Brisbane and my uncle died shortly after they arrived. It's really quite ironic. He survived the mm -hmm. concentration camp, but he died shortly after being liberated in Australia. So that gave my mother a strong motive for coming to Australia. So that's why we came. And the trouble was in 1948, it was very difficult to get a ship because there was a shortage of ships to carry migrants to the New World. Mm. We were, had to wait for six months in Paris waiting for the ship. The ship, when it arrived, was a total wreck. It was a hell ship which was built in 1915 during World War I for the German East Africa Company, and it was built to accommodate nine passengers. Now, sometime in 1948, a Greek ship owner called Livanos bought this wreck, and I think in about five minutes flat, he refitted it so that it could carry 545 passengers. There were no laundry facilities, the and end, how long was the journey? Well, it was meant to be six weeks maximum, but it was actually nearly three months. Yeah. Everything went wrong on that ship. Two days out, a fire broke out on board. How old were you? Do you have a memory of that? Not much. I was nine. Yeah. Um, in fact, when I came to write the book about the journey, which I called The Voyage of Their Life, I relied largely on stories that I heard from passengers whom I managed to, I traced over a hundred passengers who'd been on that ship. And um, they told me the most incredible stories. If I'd turned it into a novel, no one would have believed it. It really um, does make me think that not a lot has changed these days. <laughs> you still have people being transported on ships in desperation for you know, a better life. Exactly. I mean, we are a nation of boat people one way we and are. another. We are. It's a transient world because there are so many people in trouble and we need to help them out. Yes, definitely. Mm. Mm. Okay, so where did you first come to in Australia? Where did that ship land? The ship docked in Melbourne and it was actually um, Melbourne Cup Day and the passengers <laughs> couldn't for the life of them understand what was happening. why everything was closed. It was a Tuesday yeah. and 
all the shops were closed and everyone seemed to be gathered around certain places and there was a lot of excitement, but they just couldn't understand what the problem was. Anyway, from there, we flew straight to Brisbane to be with my aunt, who, after her husband's death, was virtually left alone in Brisbane. So, but we didn't stay in Brisbane very long because my father, who had been a dentist for 25 years by then, would have had to study the entire four years dentistry in and that's in Queensland, happening. yes. Yeah. But in he found out that in Sydney he would only, and I'm using the word only in inverted commas, he would only have to study for three years. The point being that we had no money at all, and so that one year made a big difference. Of course, it so did. we moved to Sydney. Yeah, and he studied dentistry, and he studied in a foreign language. Yeah. And I remember watching him huddled over his lecture notes that he was trying to decipher and he had a Polish-English dictionary beside him trying to find words that he'd written in lectures. But I, I have to say that, as I mentioned before, my parents were extraordinary people. They never complained. Mm -hmm. They were not bitter. They didn't feel that the government should be doing something for them. They just got on with it. My mother went to work in a dress factory. She became what they called then a finisher. Mm -hmm. She hemmed coats and jackets and skirts, which she'd never done in her life, but she supported us. I went to school not knowing a word of English. Tell me about that day, because that happened to me too. My parents um, are Lebanese, and I remember when I started school at six, I didn't know how to speak English or read or write. and um, But I don't remember that being traumatic. Neither do I. But, you know, I do remember the first English word I ever learned. What was that? We were – they sat me with a class of children. I couldn't understand what, what – year? The, this was fourth class. Fourth I was, class. I was – so you were older than I me. I was nine, yeah. mm. and I couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. But at one point, the teacher said, next, and a little boy stood up. See, this was in the days when the children stood up to speak to the teacher, which just shows you how long ago that was. And when they were calling out the role. <laughs> yes, Is that right? yeah. yes. Anyway, she said, next, and a little boy stood up, and I thought that must be his name. <laughs> so, Hi, next. <laughs> yes. So he sat down. And after a while, she said, next again. And another little boy stood up. And I thought, this is a funny country. All the little boys are called next. But luckily for me, this was a mixed class and there were girls in the class. And the next time she said next, a little girl stood up. And then I realized what the word meant. And that's really the only word that I clearly remember learning. Mm, extraordinary. Yes. It? Yeah, yeah. It is extraordinary that the, the brain of a child that you absorb things. And I, I would imagine that as an adult, you know, just being thrown into that scenario would be so difficult. But as children, you tend to navigate it in a way through observation and, and taking it in, don't you? Yes. You know, people say to me that must have been so traumatic. But like you, I. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Didn't find it dramatic. No. The children were very nice to me. The teachers were wonderful. Yeah. And... It just happened. I, it was what it was. It yeah. was what it was. And I, I think I learned English by osmosis somehow. I yeah, don't know how. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, all right. So then talk to me about, had you started thinking about stories then? Because you'd seen so much. Well, my first story that I wrote, I was age 12. Yeah. And I sent it to the Women's Weekly. Oh, wow. I was wrote, ambitious. <laughs> I wrote it by hand and it was a very, um, I thought, a very deep story about a girl who wanted to be, a young young woman really, who wanted to be an actress and she went along to audition for a role and the director said to her, well, if you can spin a tall story to some stranger and bring him back to me to prove it, I will give you the role. So she goes on a bus, she meets some guy she's never seen, she tells him, that she's being um, pursued by some nefarious character that I call the Scorpion and he becomes very uh, upset for her and wants to help and she brings him back to the um, theatre director and I finish off the story with the line, which I still remember, she got the job but lost the man. <laughs> so you're a wild storyteller back then. Um, and what happened? What did Women's Weekly say? Well, after a few weeks, a manila envelope, suspiciously thick, arrived back at my house and I was playing then with my best girlfriend who was from Greece. I think we two migrant children just gravitated to each other. And as soon as I saw that envelope and it was addressed to me, I knew that my story had come back. And my friend said, um, oh, you got a letter. So I sort of tried to hide it. She said, what is it? I said, oh, no, I think it's a mistake. Even then, I was too proud and I don't know what to admit that I'd had a story rejected. Yeah. I was 12. Mm. But that's the beginning. I mean, you know, it's the life of a writer, isn't it? <laughs> it's full of rejections. It's interesting to me that at the age of 12 and given the experience that you had, you're writing a love story. Um, I, I I don't know, if for, for a long time I had visions of people that live in, you know, um, developed countries and and people that live in war-torn countries or developing countries and war-torn countries, that their whole life is consumed by their plight. But when I went to Lebanon for the first time, I noticed that that was so not true, that people just live the best life that they can and that they were living the life that I was living. And that's you, isn't it, at the age 12? Yes. You know, you're just like every other 12-year-old and you're writing a story that's, you know, almost like a love story. But I think what's interesting about that story was that there was a sort of an irony in it. Yes. And that's a theme that has persisted to this day. I'm always interested in stories that are full of irony and moral ambiguity. And that's something that has stayed with me ever since then. 
Yeah, yeah. But is this that you write from the experience that you want to live or from the life that you want to live? Well, I was a bookworm. Yeah. And in fact, I was brought up on a diet of Enid Blyton mystery books to the extent that at one stage, and I think I must have been, it was even before I was 12, I must have been 11 in primary school, I decided that two of the girls in my class were planning to kidnap a third. And I thought, I have to do something about this. As you can see, I spent my life looking for mysteries because that's what I used to read. And I actually wrote a letter to the headmistress Mm. telling her that I thought I should bring it to her attention that there was a girl in my class who was in deadly danger. And one day, a few days later, I was called into her office and um, she sat me down. And she said, now, Diane, what's this deep and dark mystery all about? And, well, I explained that, you know, I thought it was my duty to report that this girl was in terrible danger. Well, to her eternal credit, I still remember her. The headmistress was called Miss Child. She was a lovely motherly woman with white hair and very pink cheeks. And she didn't laugh at me. And she just looked at me and she nodded and she said, well... That was very good of you to bring that to my attention. Thank you very much for telling me, but I will look into it and you don't have to worry about it anymore. So I went off quite happily. I thought, well, I've done my duty. That's right. And the girl never did get kidnapped, so I knew the headmistress must have attended to it. That's right. You didn't think for a minute that maybe she was never going to get kidnapped. I No. No, of course not. <laughs> okay. So you got your first rejection when you were 12. And so when was the next manuscript? The next manuscript was I went with my first husband to England. And while I was there, an arts degree, of course, wasn't a passport to any kind of um, job. So I did so something. So you had gone to university. I went. I did an arts degree. Yeah. My father had wanted me to do dentistry because of he, he, did. he was incredibly practical. He said a woman. He was way ahead of his time. He said a woman needs to be independent. And I said, but I'll get married. So we were like a complete role reversal, and. He said, but you don't know if you'll be married. You don't know if you'll stay married. You might get divorced. You might be widowed. If you have children, you can work part-time. It was all 100% sensible. Well, and, and also that career carried him right through. It saved yes, his family. Exactly. Mm. And, but I said, I want to write. Mm. So He must when, have just shook his head. <laughs> he said, do you want to teach? I said, God forbid. But I did end up teaching and that teaching was the passport to my writing career because I ended up with a blackboard jungle kind of class which I won over by taking them to a musical in the West End which was then My Fair Lady. And when I came back to Australia, we'd been away four years. In the meantime, all my friends had had children and mortgages and everything One of my friends said, if you ever want to do anything, you have to do it before you have children. When she went home, I said to my husband, I've got one month left to write. I was eight months pregnant. (laughs) So he said, you'd better hurry up. So I sat down that night and I thought, well, what am I going to write? And I thought, okay, I'm going to write about that blackboard jungle. And I wrote a story that I called My Fair Ladies. And it was, I sent it to the only magazine I knew. It was again the Australian Women's Weekly. Well, they were publishing short stories at the time. And they published it with 
And that's, that got me started. Wow. They published it. What was the story about? It was about how I started with a class that not only ignored me, but kept talking while I stood there. I'd, I hadn't been to teacher's college. I knew nothing about teaching. And I stood there. All I knew was what I'd experienced at Sydney High, which was discipline and good behavior and politeness. And these girls were laughing. They were commenting on what I was wearing, all very nicely, but totally uncontrolled. And I couldn't get a word in. Mm-hmm. So it was a struggle. And then one day, I saw one of them came into the classroom and she had like a bird's nest hairdo and black burnt hole in the blanket eyes with coal. And I said, you look like Eliza Doolittle. And she said, who's she, miss? So I said, you know, my fair ladies, they'd never heard of it. They'd never been to the West End. They'd never seen a live show. And in a mad moment, I said, would you like me to arrange tickets to take you? Yes, miss. And when I told the other teachers in the classroom that I was taking 4B to see my fair lady in the West End, they all looked at me as if I was a few slices short of a loaf. But I did. And that turned things around. And that actually became the passport to my writing career because that got me started. And probably that that was the beginning of their passion for story. Well, I think that turned their lives around because they were just thrilled. For me, it was the biggest thrill to watch their reaction to what was happening, especially Alfred Doolittle, who spoke exactly the way they did. And I think they got something from it. They could see there was somebody in the education system who really cared about them. Mm. And for me, it was a learning experience too. Absolutely. Okay, so you're back in Sydney and you've had your first short story published. So what do you do next? The next thing I did was I started writing personal experience stories because I thought, this is amazing. You write something, you even get paid for it. I think I got 10 guineas for that story about the the school. Everyone I knew read it because everyone read the Women's Weekly at that stage. And I thought, this this is amazing. So I started writing stories about how to find a kindergarten for your child, all personal experience things, and they went very well. Where were they published? Women's Day, Women's Weekly. And then I started researching stories, and then I branched out into the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian, because I, if I met someone interesting, I would write a profile on them. Or if I was interested in a topic that I knew nothing about, I thought, well, maybe other people would be interested too. The first story I ever wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald was about chiropractors, because that was a, a, a beginning field at that stage. And I thought, I don't know anything about this. So I researched it, and they published it. Then I got into travel writing, and I wrote a lot about travel. So for a number of years, and then I wrote for women's magazines. And then when did you write your first book? My first book was was published in 1998, and that was Mosaic, and that was my family story. 
I'd always been fascinated by the stories that my father told about his family. He was one of 11 children, and they all sounded like such characters. I was very fortunate in that, unlike many Holocaust survivors, my parents were very open about what had happened to them and what had happened to their families. And at that stage, at the beginning, I thought I was going to write a story about my amazing relatives. And that was that continued to be the case until I went back to Poland and I had that encounter with the priest. Was that the first time you had gone back? No, I had gone back once before. Right. As a travel writer. Of course, yeah. But this time I went back to do some research. About This was the second time I went back researching and that was the time when I realised that Mosaic was not just a story about my amazing relatives, it was my story. And that was quite a wake-up call Mm. because that was my realisation, thanks to meeting the priest, that I was also a Holocaust survivor. This was my story as well. Mm. Beautiful. And so now you've got a fiction book out. It's called The Collaborator. I've got to say it's one of the, the most beautiful covers I've seen in a long time, and we see a lot of books here. Tell me how this story came about. When I first... It's based on a true story. Yeah. I and know. when I first heard the story, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. It was such an incredible story, full of controversy, moral ambiguity, heroism, whatever you... Mm. want in a story, it had it. And so that got me thinking, I've got to do something with this story. It, it was as, like a story from the footnotes of history and I was fascinated by it and I knew I had to stay with it and find some way of fictionalising it. Yeah, and you've done that and you've done a fabulous job. Diane, we've run out of time. I can't thank you enough. If you want to find out more about The Collaborator, you'll have to buy the book. Diane Armstrong, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.